Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon. Here with my co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric. Good Good afternoon, Rachel. This is a big day for us. It's a huge day for us. And I am so excited. I am too. I mean, you know how I feel. I I love journalists. I have so much respect for journalists and um, what what a really, really hard job it is, but particularly writing, you know, is under the deadline and all the things that come with it and and really critical topics that we should be discussing. I can't wait to jump into our conversation. Is that a good lead in? I, I, I think that's a very good lead in, but we let, why don't you do the introduction? Who do we have today as a special guest? Oh, I'm so excited. We've got Ellen Nakashima joining us. She's national security reporter for the Washington Post and a multi-Pulitzer Prize winner um, for some really amazing coverage, particularly around the last election. Previously, the reporting of a hidden scope of government surveillance as policy implications in 2014. Welcome, Ellen. We're so excited. Great to be with you. Okay. So- Love all your reporting right now. It's it's interesting the whole you know Taiwan China thing. Um, I couldn't escape the email alerts uh, with with all of the news coming with with Nancy traveling over to Taiwan. And it's been so so great to read your reporting on that kind of leading up to the visit, but also during and after. You know, I think a lot of people would ask kind of why was the trip such a flashpoint? I don't know that everyone really understands what's going on over there. Yeah, uh, it, that's right. In fact, stepping back a bit, we should. Put it in context that you know relations between the U.S. and China have been strained for for some time now, for some years, including back during the Trump administration, you know, with its trade war. And there is frankly no single issue that aggravates this relationship more than Taiwan. And so with that, right, you've got the fact that China claims Taiwan, which is a self-ruled democracy, as its own, and. The United States, just for years, has maintained this delicate and increasingly difficult balancing act of policy that recognizes that there is but one China. Beijing is the sole legal government of China, but it does not endorse Beijing's position that Taiwan is part of China. It just acknowledges it. It just does not second it. So you can have one China as long as it doesn't include Taiwan is essentially the way a layperson may read it. Well, it's more it's more ambiguous than that. It's more that the the United States acknowledges that Beijing considers Taiwan part of China. It just doesn't explicitly endorse it. So Beijing believes that Taiwan's status is crystal clear, that Taiwan is part of China. Meanwhile, you know, the United States says we do not support Taiwan independence, but it does not endorse Beijing's position. And at the same time, as the years pass, Taiwan's people feel less and less connected to the mainland. A majority of them do not view themselves as part of China and actually prefer the status quo today of what, what is kind of an ambiguous position. Yeah. And so the U.S. says, always says, and repeated that again today, that the resolution of Taiwan's status must be be achieved peacefully. It's just increasingly difficult to see how that happens. Right. And are they even working on the resolution? It sounds like 
No. There's posturing, but I mean, we're not There's in active dialogue. No, nobody's in negotiations at this point. No right? negotiations. Yeah. No. Okay. The, I mean, in fact, in the midst of all of this, right, this is the sort of broad context um, of, of the relationship. And then you have this news leak that Nancy Pelosi is planning a trip to Taiwan. Now, you know, she first actually planned to go back in April. And when that trip leaked, it caused this big uproar on, and consternation on Beijing's part. But then Nancy Pelosi got COVID and had to cancel. So crisis averted, right? But then when news leaked again last month that she was planning to take the trip in August, Beijing, again, was outraged. And now they'd had several months to prepare all of their, you know, their their talking points for outrage. And I'm sure, as you saw in the coverage, they say they they saw no distinction between the Biden White House and Speaker of the House. To them, she is a representative, a high-ranking senior representative of the U.S. government. In fact, she's second in line to the presidency after only Kamala Harris. So for Beijing, having someone of her rank visit Taiwan would be seen as the equivalent of almost a state visit. Right. Right. Which is a slap in the face almost right. from their exactly. perspective. An affront. And so they were leaning on, you know, the, the White House, the administration to get her to stand down. They felt that Biden being, you know, he's the leader of the party, he's the president, he, she's the same party. Of course, he could tell her to back off. But Joe Biden, creature of the Senate, he actually truly does believe in this separate in separation of powers and in the separate but equal branches and and said no it's you know her right to make her up her mind if she wants to go we can't tell her not to he voided he did not speak to her directly he did not uh talk to her about the risks of taking this trip at this time so i wanted to point out that the other big big factor here is is the timing that's what made this so sensitive and such a flashpoint because mm-hmm. this trip was coming uh, just three months, a few months before this major Communist Party Congress, this 20th right. Party Congress in oh. yeah, China, where Xi Jinping, the president, is he's widely expected to, you know, secure a third term as president. It's unprecedented, right, to have this third yeah. five-year term. And so the last thing Xi Jinping wanted is a provocation, such as the speaker's trip, uh, coming at this time in, you know, their politics, domestic politics. I, I always like to look to motivation. And, and in mm. this case, like, why poke the bear? I know it's not Russia, but you get the point. Like, why poke the bear? Did, were we, did we need to make a statement? Did we need to do something? Was there a purpose? Or was it, hey, this is a free country and we can do what we want and this is what I want to do? Any, any indication why? Well, Nancy Pelosi has long been a staunch advocate of human rights and particularly in China, going back to her first term as a representative from uh, Northern California, where she actually in her first term took a trip to China with two other Congress members. And they stood in Tiananmen Square a couple of years after Tiananmen and, and actually kind of unfurled a little a banner um, yes. in, in favor of human rights in 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 China, and that really torqued off the Chinese. I mean, that was that was a big uh, a big slap in the face to them. And ever since then, she's been a thorn in the side in yeah. terms of human rights. And she has consistently spoken out against uh, Chinese 
abuses over the years to include the crackdown in Hong Kong and what's going on in, in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs. So for Pelosi, making the trip was consistent right, with, with her values. And I'll have to say with, with a lot of uh, um, lawmakers on the Hill, there's inc- increasingly bipartisan support for a tougher line against China, especially mm-hmm. because of its uh, human rights abuses and its coercive and economic uh, activities against our U.S. businesses and and its military buildup uh, and its its aggression in the South China Sea. For all those mm-hmm. reasons, there's pretty big bipartisan support on the Hill to, to sort of stand up to China. Congress has always kind of been, you know, uh, more in say Taiwan's camp than right. in PRCs, and so that's that's the kind of the dynamic you have here too. Poking them in the eye is different than having a strong China policy, isn't it? Well, Nancy Pelosi felt that this was an important uh, trip to make to stand up in, you know, solidarity with 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 Taiwan, and there were actually a number of uh, lawmakers who sort of backed up her right to do that. And some analysts say that, in fact, the trip actually opens up space internationally for other allies and partners to to do the same, though, you know, one could debate that. And some also feel that, look, if she had gone back in April, it just wouldn't have been as sensitive. It might have just, you know, she could have done done her thing and it wouldn't have caused this huge uproar that it did this time. Now, of course, you know, there have been a number of congressional delegations to Taiwan just in the last year and a half, maybe a dozen or so senators and um, members of, you know, House of Representatives, but both parties have gone to Taiwan. And the Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, at the time, uh, went in 1979. So there is precedent. It's just that the timing of this trip was seen as 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 problematic. I think I read, too, she had there were sanctions put against her. And she's the I guess the highest ranking politician from the U.S. that they have laid sanctions on. Is that accurate? I believe so. You know, they sanctioned her and her family, though. Those are, I think, largely symbolic sanctions. Right. Yeah, what are they going to do? Can't visit, you can't visit China? Okay. <laughs> like the Russian sanctions, Rachel. I know. Yeah, I just I, I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think what's a little more concerning is the way, I mean, you've probably heard about the military drills and exercises China yes. carried out, right? Over the last few days, they ended Wednesday. Um, and with those exercises, which pushed into closer to Taiwan and their waters and in their skies closer than ever before. China, you know, it sent warships, it flew jets over the so-called center line um, between China and Taiwan. It lobbed missiles into the waters near Taiwan. And with those actions, they are essentially changing the military status quo with Taiwan. Exactly. And they've been doing this gradually, step by step over the years, right? And now they just keep pushing. And so the question is, what is, you know, the United States going to do about that? What can it do about that? Part of what- well, we, we also saw we also saw cyber activity increased. You know, there were the Seven Eleven convenience stores yep. in Taiwan's had, uh, you know, displayed words "Warmonger Pelosi, get out of Taiwan." I thought that was right. very creative, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but, but we saw massive, we, we saw significant, I think I, I saw something reported 20, 23 times yes. um, increase in cyber attacks on the Taiwan government, government agencies 
during this window. I believe those were DDoS attacks, right? Distributed. They they were DDoS from APT reported. Attribution is really hard in cyber, but, but reportedly from Emissary Panda or APT 27, which is a group out of China. I don't think those DDoS attacks were that significant. um, No. Really, not certainly not of strategic significance, much less, you know, I don't think really tactical either. There was nothing that disrupted any electric grid or critical infrastructure, pipeline, water supply, you know, knocked out um, shipping communications or wiped data, caused physical damage. So in that sense, I would say these DDoS attacks were... Um, par for the course, a bit of a nuisance, yeah. but not strategically that significant. Now, yeah, I, now we did have aircraft and, and naval exercises that did disrupt shipping and air travel. Mm-hmm. So we had the physical world in this case, which I think was much more an impactful statement from what I Right. Those were those military exercises we were talking about. China created six exclusion zones all around the island and wanted to demonstrate to Taiwan how they might carry off an economic blockade. They did uh, push the status quo there, as we were just saying. On the other hand, they will only, they will take economic measures only to a certain point because they are as dependent, they are dependent on Taiwan for their supply I, chain just as much as you know Taiwan also needs um, them and needs access to the outside world for trade. So I think the analysis here is that China will go only so far with these coercive economic measures like um, blocking imports, for instance, of uh, fish and fruit. They'll do some targeted things, but, but they won't do an all-out full-on uh, blockade because it hurts them as well. Right, because and, and I'm not a Southeast Asia expert, but but Taiwan is 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 really a gateway almost in many for many countries and many companies into mainland China, is it not? Well, Taiwan is um, in particular very key in in the technology field, especially in semiconductors. Right. And so that is one industry that I think uh, China will not want to uh, have 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 damaged. So. You see, you'll see continued um, military drills. In fact, even though they said they've completed these live fire exercises, they also announced that they will continue with, uh, you know, training and even like, you know, war preparation, just preparation of, of military activities in the coming weeks and months. Because one thing that was most significant about these exercises that we just saw was it really enabled China to practice joint operations between air and sea that they have very little opportunity to do otherwise. They've never been, they haven't been in a war since 1979. Wow. Invaded Vietnam. And so they don't have the uh the experience that for better or for worse the United States has had. And they were you know, in fact, looking for a pretext to to do some of these exercises, and Nancy Pelosi's trip provided that. Yes. Well, I, I imagine it was very convenient timing, as, yeah. as you as you speak about, because they're watching Russia, who's struggling with that in Ukraine right now. So right. If we do mean to be threatening, if we do intend to invade Taiwan at some point, we better practice, and this is a great excuse to practice. Yeah. Exactly. <sighs> What do you think is going to happen? I mean, I know you were a Southeast Asia correspondent. Is is Taiwan and China Southeast Asia or East Asia, technically? East Asia, yeah. 
So okay. it's not part of the Southeast Asian Alliance, you know, Southeast Asia, it's the ASEAN, which is the Association of Southeast Asian uh, Nations. Okay, but, but, but your opinion on, on down the road here, right? Do yeah, we return no. to some source, some sense of normalcy? Do, 10 years from now, does China say enough is enough? How, how do you see this playing out? Right. Well, we'll see what, what happens in November when Xi Jinping gets his third term. Does this is, does it embolden him? Does he then become even more uh, willing to push the limits and and force the question on Taiwan and taking to, to the you know point of in the coming years taking Taiwan reunifying Taiwan by by force? The sense is that he doesn't want a military conflict. Uh, Taiwan certainly doesn't want it. The United right. States doesn't want it, but you know, China has said we will, uh, we, we are going to reunify, that there is no, you know, that is a given. And the only question is, you know, do we do it peacefully or by force? And they have not ruled out using force if necessary. You know, I think people are just going to, are, are, are watching to see what happens in the coming months leading up to the Congress and then what happens afterwards. You look at what happened with Hong Kong and there uh, they, they, they passed some pretty draconian policy yeah. laws that really put the squeeze on, on Hong Kong, but also served as a real uh, test bed test bed and warning though to Taiwan Taiwan saw that and it right. was, freaked out and got even pushed you know to it pulled further away from China right. so that we could you know be next and then you mentioned uh, Russia and Ukraine and they looked at Ukraine and Russian invasion and said wow you know that in fact we have stories in the post about how some Taiwanese uh, volunteers went to Ukraine to train just so that they could learn to be you know how they could manage self-defense and be ready for any potential invasion um, from from China. So they see the Taiwanese see parallels between their own situation and that of Ukraine and of course Hong Kong. Um, and you know Taiwan does does feel threatened by this larger, more authoritarian neighbor that has nuclear weapons, just as Ukraine felt the threat from from Russia. I think it would be hard to not see the parallels. Right, right, right. right. I mean, but there are there are differences. Uh, Ukraine is a sovereign state; it's a member of the United Nations. Right. Taiwan was actually expelled from the UN in 1971 when China was admitted, and you know, I, it, it's been officially recognized diplomatically by only 14 countries today. That's the latest count. China's gradually trying to whittle that number down right. and them off one by one, tries to get these countries to switch their diplomatic recognition to Beijing and try to isolate Taiwan in that way. So that's another way in which China is trying to put this pressure on, on Taiwan. Okay, I'm not buying real estate in Taiwan anytime soon based on this conversation. <laughs> I just yeah. don't feel that's a risky, uh, risky, uh, ri risk adverse it. idea. So switching, switching to Ukraine then, you know, with your background, and, and I, I'll go on record again as saying many have the best perspective on cybersecurity activity out there because you dig, you look at both sides, and you tell a relatively fair and independent story of what's happening. Just my opinion, and it doesn't apply to everybody. It certainly applies to you, Ellen. With Ukraine, were you surprised that we didn't see more of a lead up from a cybersecurity perspective into the invasion? 
And, and were you surprised that the Russians weren't more effective in the work that they tried to do from a cybersecurity perspective? On the first question, invasion? I was a little surprised. Uh, on on the second, yeah, I was I was more surprised there that they weren't more effective. I will say that there was so much almost breathless, you know, speculation beforehand that there would be this, uh, you know, big cyber. Right. cyber enabling attack exactly yeah right that i didn't you know i just i i instinctively feel like sometimes that builds up the anticipation to the point where you're going to be disappointed and right. um i did a story shortly before the invasion and I, one of the smartest analysts if you haven't had him on your show yet you have to is dimitri and uh, alperovich Dimitri is a friend of the show. He's been on. We we love Dimitri. Yeah. Okay. He's great. great. So <laughs> he's a friend you know, of mine. He's also, mutual. Yeah. And he's, he's he's brilliant. He's yes. he's probably said what I'm going to tell you, which is he he said before the invasion. He said he actually thought that uh, Russia would probably do more kinetic attacks than cyber because they would just be sort of more effective. Why you know why right. spend time and money and preparation on on a cyber disabling operation when you can you know launch a missile and take out the, the communication system? And in fact, he was much closer to the truth of what actually happened. Right. And Agreed. So, yeah, I think the the main takeaway is that Russia pretty much likely determined in in battle for Ukraine that kinetic attacks just bombing cell towers and infrastructure would be more effective than right. cyber attack. And so that's that was their game plan. Part of it too was that they likely assumed that the uh, the war would be quick and painless right. relatively for them. And so they didn't need to you know spend a lot of effort and time um, planning elaborate cyber sabotage and disruption. You know, I interviewed the head of Ukraine's cybersecurity agency a few weeks ago when he was visiting the States and New York, and his name is Victor Shora. He, he told me cyber operations cannot have as much impact as kinetic ones. When a country has the right to shell another country there's no need to use sophisticated cyber weapons. I'm in full agreement, and I, I agree with Dimitri, right? A, a, a cruise missile, a ballistic missile, a bomb, special operations forces attack, whatever it may be. I mean, that's direct, it's to the point, and it's relatively effective. The question I would have is, you have a relatively evolved and professional cybersecurity operation, offensive capability in the right. in, in Russia. You've been attacking Ukraine for more than a decade. Right. Why not turn the lights out? Why not stop the water? Why not do things and then come and bomb the water treatment plants? Then come and bomb the the military bases, the whatever. You've you've been attacking them. So right. I don't know that it would be a a huge surprise, like blowing the surprise. That that was my thought. Yeah. Now, of course, you pointed out, right, that Russia has been using Ukraine as its test bed for years. Right. It's, it's gone into there and uh, disrupted their electric grid uh, twice, 2015 and 2016. And so Ukraine has had time to, to learn, build resilience, build partnerships, and coordinate with companies, with governments, certainly with the United States and, and NATO and other uh, and, and and other private sector partners who have gone in and and run war games and looked at their systems, right. helped them to make their uh, critical infrastructure more 
resilient and hardened. Now, mind you, as I reported on this, the U.S. intelligence community did assess earlier this year that the Russians likely had penetrated, broadly penetrated, some military energy and other systems, critical systems, mm -hmm. to collect intelligence and maybe potentially position themselves to disrupt. Right. But the, the intelligence community had not yet decided or figured out whether or not they intended to do anything with that access. And we do know that some cases the access was discovered and and Russians booted out. Right. So I think there was a combination of factors. One is that the Ukrainians did have better a uh, better defense. The Russians were a bit distracted, and they also thought they could rely more on its kinetic operations. Right. And we still don't know why they didn't, for instance, do the sorts of wiper attacks that they pulled off in um, January, why they didn't do those closer to the actual the invasion itself, the date of the invasion that might have you know, been a little more impactful. They all they did was burn burn their accesses. Then, yeah, that's it. Was, did that surprise you that they didn't do anything more um, impactful? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, they did carry off that Viasat satellite attack where right. they uh, disrupted oh ten thousands, tens of thousands of of satellite modems in Ukraine and yeah. in, in Europe, but. Again, the Ukrainians uh, were able to switch, it, switch from a one military communication system to another, so they were able to recover from that. And eventually, the company just also replaced the uh, the, the, the modems the, themselves. Uh, modems. Right. So another thing about cyber is, you know, these attacks usually are um, you can recover from them. It's a question of just it takes time. So yeah. So I, I have a burning question here regarding just natural national security in general how, how have you observed nat national security policy so u.s policy change over the last few years as it relates to cyber attacks i know you've covered a lot on the elections you, you, yes. you covered a lot of these attacks how have you seen the you know the the executive branch congress everybody like how have you seen things change for one thing the u.s government has just gotten a lot more uh, comfortable with the idea of speaking about cyber operations, cybersecurity more openly. When I first started covering this over a decade ago, it was all in euphemisms. They never wanted to even mention suspicion that China was behind a certain intrusion or Russia. They would call them APTs or advanced persistent threats. Yes. When right. everyone knew that they were referring to China and Russia, and it was like, supposed to avoid, you know, stepping on diplomatic toes. Uh, so now they're, you know, they're coming out and officially attributing uh, different hacks and intrusions, operations and espionage campaigns to China, Russia, North Korea and Iran. And they've done uh, indictments and they've done some sanctions and they're being more forthcoming in that regard. Yeah. Question is, you know, the, those sorts of measures aren't really the silver bullet. No, no one thing is. They have started to also um, really try to focus more in more coordinated fashion on the defense between the U.S. government and the private sector. This administration mm -hmm. has in particular, uh, they've 
got much more bureaucracy around that too, right. because you've got a lot of people at the Department of Homeland Security and CISA and then the White House and the NSA and Cyber Command and the State Department and DOT all working on one or another aspect of cyber. But they're trying to pull together and, and really raise the game of the private sector in particular in water, pipeline, electricity sectors, all the critical ones right. that they were disrupted could cause because caused panic. You noticed how one, one interesting change in policy happened last year with ransomware, uh, because for, yes. for many years, ransomware was just kind of considered this nuisance type of crime. It was a criminal thing done by crim, criminal actors, not, not nation states. And then when um, it was actually a criminal group, a Russian criminal group uh, hacked or, or sent ransomware into Colonial Pipeline and Colonial Pipeline out of an abundance of caution, shut down their pipeline because the fact that the ransomware actually got into their administrative system, not right. the industrial or operational side of the system that controls the pipeline. It was on the business side of the house. But out of an abundance of caution, they shut down their pipeline. And that created this huge yes. sense of panic, right, amongst a lot of... Uh, it became real. It right. became real because all of a sudden people said, oh, no, we're going to run out of gas. And they started lining up in gas stations and creating these panic, the sense of, well, there's going to be fuel shortage. And that panic is what spurred the government all the way up to the president to pay attention and all of a sudden, for the first time, elevate ransomware to a national security issue. Right, because up till then it hadn't been, and now, and then Biden raised it with with Vladimir Putin at their summit in Geneva last year, uh, and and so that's another change in policy that was spurred, driven by what was like a almost you know routine ransomware attack that happened though to hit a critical infrastructure company and create a huge wave of panic, and that's the I, thing. Yeah. That's the thing that moves people, right? Or is is the strategic part of cyber. It's the sense of panic or fear that mm -hmm. an act, an act or an operation can induce in people. It's it's almost not the the thing itself, right? It's the the sense of oh my god, you know what could come next, right? And 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 getting very physical again. It's tangible. We can feel right. it. I'm sure, Rachel, you were running out to get gas to make sure you were okay. <laughs> I have extra stores here in Texas. You were you okay? Know. Oh, yeah. I was good. You weren't filling good. up the plastic bags? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> do you, but, Rachel, so so listening to this, do you, as, as a citizen of the United States, do you feel better that that they're more open about it? They're talking about it. It's it's becoming a, a national issue. Or was it better in 2010, 12, when we really didn't? talk about it much. I like that it's a national issue myself. I mean, it's we you have to address it. It's not going away. It's you know, I was on LinkedIn the other day and Sony Pictures is hiring hiring security like threat intelligence people, right? To to join their business and I think this is just the beginning, right? It's going to permeate every single late. aspect. Well, but it, it encompasses every aspect of our our lives, you know, our personal and professional lives. So we really do need to be talking about it. I just think it's so Fascinating. And I'd be interested in your perspective here, Alan. You know, you, you hear about we're in a cyber war. Maybe it's the world's first cyber war happening now with the Ukraine and Russia conflict, but you're like, I don't know, I really feel anything. And, you know, in this heightened sense of fear, 
right? And you're like, okay, well, Colonial Pipeline hasn't happened again. I, I'm able to get gas. My my supply chain for food is okay. And, you know, all the other yeah. things. Is, that, is, it, is it really a cyber war? I mean, you is love that, a- that term? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? What really gets me is the cyber Pearl Harbor or cyber 9-11. Right. Right? It's, it's great for headlines. It's though. great for headlines, but it's it's inflammatory language that stokes fear, but doesn't shed any real light on what's, what the threat is. Right. And I think especially in today's uh, fraught time, the new news environment, we just need less stoking of emotions and fear and, and more accurate uh, scoping of the threat. Exactly. But does, does that get eyeballs? You're right. It does. It seems to not get as many eyeballs, but it's. I, I feel like in the end, it's the bet. If everyone can do that, then we will have a saner and and, yes. and more effective, you know, policy and uh, healthier and safer society. We just don't need so much threat hyping. No. I'm, I'm kind of tired of all the threat hyping. It's not just in cyber; it's everything, right? It's like so. If we could all just keep calm, okay, take a deep breath, carry on, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I don't know, a centrist. I'm a, I'm a, let's just keep it in the middle, in the neutral gray zone. You believe this? Someone believes? Can we meet in the middle and all compromise? We all live together on this planet, right? But I it, mean, it I'm not against like it's getting worse. I'm not against calling something out when it's, uh, when it really deserves it or when it's outrageous, right. and and I You're, don't, think, right? You know, downplaying things either, but you just every little cyber uh, intrusion or DDoS or run-of-the-mill you know, phishing effort to get someone's personal information is called a cyber attack. And then that just, it it makes the word meaningless after a while. Right. You become numb. Yes. And, and I do feel, I've been in this business a long time now, and I, I feel like where we've, you know, if you go back to 2010, it was a very different world. Right. Mm-hmm. But we're almost numb to it these days. That's right. Unless somebody impacts our gas or food, potentially, right? right. We had those issues. Right. But we're almost numb, and we're losing—I don't know, Rachel. I think you have the stats: hundreds of billions of dollars more a year than we were back in 2010, or are we in the trillions now? It's in the trillions. Yeah, the cost. Yes. Right. We're not fixing the problem. We're like, ooh, big, and it's—we're numb to it, and it's getting worse. Like we we. Yeah. I don't, I don't know the answer. <laughs> I do know when we talk about cyber Pearl Harbor, we talk about cyber war, the people I know, military officers get very uh, agitated about that because war really means something to them. Right. Not right. that you can't use cyber in war, but cyber war is very different than somebody showing up on your front door in Northern Ukraine. Right. Well, it exactly. doesn't belong there. Yeah. Let, let's just be more discerning with the language we use so, so that it actually means something. I mean, there's a difference between uh, a disruptive attack that takes out, turns off your lights for a day or two days and a, an intrusion that's meant to steal sensitive, highly compartmented, top secret, special compartmented information, classified information, and mm-hmm. a criminal taking, you know, phishing you and to, to get your social security number and credit card information, which is bad. But, you know, they're, they're just different types of right. operations. And, and you can also include in, in the list of other things that um, 
you know, cyber operations to hack information and then leak it for effect, which is what happened with right. Sony. You mentioned Sony. Yes. An interesting one too, right? The first maybe real hack and dump that um, that created uh, a, a big news and mm-hmm. really <laughs> got, uh, got Sony's attention. So. Yeah. so how do we, you know, wrapping up here, how, how do we, I'm trying to word this, Rachel. How do, how do we hold journalists accountable? And I'm using the word loosely, Ellen. I mean, yeah. your credentials speak for themselves, right? right? You're, you're, you're a credentialed journalist. But if I throw something up on Twitter. I may think of myself <laughs> as a, a journalist of some sort. But how do we, how do we provide that voice yeah. that's so critical from the fourth estate while not providing that inflammatory voice that that oftentimes is influenced by disinformation misinformation campaigns from other countries like what's what's the answer there look it's it's that's a difficult question in general not just for cyber but for that's why i ended with it right (laughs) right it's like well it's how i open with that when the show's (laughs) over right (laughs) right no exactly i mean just goes to the sort of uh environment we're, we're in today. I mean, you look at what's happening down in Mar-a-Lago and with the uh, Justice Department, FBI, and the Trump mm-hmm. people. So, you know, we, we as journalists just have a responsibility not to play up events that aren't truly significant, to, right. to report on significant events as accurately and dispassionately and with context as possible, and yes. just continue to do that keep your head down and do the work. Uh, And look, we have a much more fragmented news media universe now with with people going to so many different types of places for their information, uh, blogs and podcasts among them, uh, smaller news sites, social media sites. So there are fewer just sort of single established mainstream outlets that generally people kind of congregate to right. and, and have consensus on that this is this is the, the news and with that type of fragmentation it's it's a little harder sometimes to uh, you know resolve all the competing threads and narratives so I guess we, we just have to do our best and raise hopefully children and citizens who are uh who, who are able to have critical thinking skills mm-hmm. and um, have tolerance and can appreciate sort of you know the the role of of news and journalism and and facts and fact checking in trying to get to That's the truth and building kind of a community consensus right of, of a society built around certain values and and trust in institutions and these yeah. institutions have to keep get our earn our trust. Right. So it's like this virtuous, you know, the cycle, right? Where they yes. have to be, they have to earn our trust by being uh, transparent as possible uh, and and accountable and being willing to be held to account. And yeah. we as the media generally need to try to play the role of, 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 we need to play that role as best we can of holding them to account, of, of yes. being transparent and truthful. I didn't, you know, <laughs> want to sound like I'm on a soapbox, but I do really feel feel all of that. And whether it's covering 
uh, cyber attacks or Russian interference in the 2016 election or you know, whatever links there might be between Russia and, uh, and, and efforts to reach out to the Trump world or what's going on today. I think we just need to do this all as, as, as dispassionately and yes. honestly as possible. And be humble about what we know and what we don't know. Yes. Admit our mistakes. I, 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 I think that's a great way to look at it. I, I, for, for me, as I speak with people, just in general, I, I think one of the biggest challenges is finding reputable sources, finding exactly. and understanding, you know, okay, Ellen Nakashima has this pedigree. Okay, we know you know, we can trust that you are doing the fact, not that you're never wrong, That's but that right. you're doing the fact checking, you're doing the right. best you can. I'm not sure how to teach that to my kids. Uh, and there's so much noise out there. It's really hard. And what I'm hearing these days, a lot of people get so frustrated. They can't get to the truth. They hear inflammatory, con you know, commentary. They hear things that they don't want to hear and they just shut off social mm -hmm. media and the news. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and that's scary to me also. Yeah. Yes. Well, we just have to keep on doing our best. You're doing your best to raise your children and to, to you know, to, to trust, but verify, uh, to continue to, to, to look for information, but to vet that information and in a critical way. And if they see that over time, Building up those habits and those skills lead to more sort of successful outcomes in their own life. And they can vet things that actually do happen against what people said might happen or what wouldn't happen and mm -hmm. just prove it out in their own lives. Then perhaps, you know, we can move to a, a better place in this country. Um, right now, it's, it's just so divided and, and chaotic. Uh, yeah. A lot of work to do internally. Yes. Yes. Well, you keep writing and we will, we will keep working it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Definitely hopeful for the future. I think we can get there, Ellen. I, I, I think that future can, can be attainable. Great. Uh, Love your optimism. <laughs> <laughs> we try. Well, Thanks. Thanks, thank you guys. so much for joining us, Ellen. Really, truly, we really appreciate it. Um, such a such a great perspective that you provide, and and you know, I, I echo Eric's sentiments as well. I mean, just the work you do is just so important, and, and we're just so grateful that you're out there on the front lines, uh, you know, doing this great journalism uh, because people do need that resource, and and uh, we need we need much more of it. So, okay. thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Right. Take Bye -bye. care. Right. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us yet again. Uh, and don't be afraid to subscribe on that button and you'll get this episode right in your email inbox on Tuesday. Until next time, be safe. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 